Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and ripping up APIs. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, doing pretty good. I'm kind of enjoying this uh, new fortnightly schedule we have. Yeah? It is kind of, the last couple of months, the podcast has become kind of like the the demarcation point in time for my week. Mm-hmm. Like there's before the podcast and there's after the podcast, even though I, you know, I do my weekly review on a different day, but it's been kind of a, a way of like dividing things up. And now that we're doing it every two weeks, I basically have a 14 day long week. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of like that because I don't really like taking regular weekends off because i don't really work nine to five so i don't it's very rare for me to take saturday and sunday off reliably on an ongoing basis and before i was just taking off saturday and then maybe having a light day on sunday but now i've gotten to the point where i basically worked through last weekend and then this past weekend i took a three-day weekend so it's kind of like a you know a nine-day work week followed by a three-day off thing and then kind of a day for the podcast and admin and stuff to just a weird little structure i don't know if i'll, I'll keep it up going in the future but it's just kind of i was thinking about that this morning this has been a, a long week oh wait it's been two weeks yeah every two weeks has actually been working out really well for me as well Good. Um, i always have more to talk about and i'm not I'm not trying to get things done so I have something to talk about on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm getting things done without rushing or pushing things or anything like that. I'm just working on things at the pace they need to be worked on and then talking about it every two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, and it's similar to, I don't know why I didn't think about it sooner, but it's basically the way I do my consulting projects is we meet every two weeks for you know, an iteration meeting slash, you know, grab more information out of the client's head. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is basically the podcast equivalent of that. So, yeah. Um, so I, I fell into a pretty good routine of kind of splitting my time between retrospective timelines and some consulting stuff. Um, it's been a pretty busy couple of weeks on the consulting side. Had some projects land. And also one of my customers is going through their busiest time of year. They're a child care provider and they're going through their registration and enrollment for next year. So my, uh, the amount of support I'm doing is 10 times higher than normal because, you know, we go from 20 or 30 people a day using the web app to, you know, 1500 trying to use it at the same time. (laughs) And a lot of people don't have any questions or don't, don't understand what to do with certain stuff or, um, it's particularly, it's particularly tough because the site's built in English. We have a lot of non-native English speaking parents who are trying to go through this enrollment stuff. A lot of people that just moved to the community. It's just like, there's just a lot of extra back and forth, like, we don't really have translation set up. So it's just uh-huh. been kind of like, you know, going through the office and getting questions answered and office going through me to get stuff done. So yeah, it's been busy. But I've fallen into this routine of basically splitting up my day to the first two or three hours every day in the morning, getting up and working on 
learning a little bit more about something. So reading through a tutorial or a couple of blog posts and then working on my app for about two hours and then kind of limiting my involvement for the app at that. So by you know eight o'clock or so, I'm shutting down Xcode for the day and moving on to something else. So that's been, you know, the rest of the day, four to four to five hours after that's been, you know, FileMaker work, some web work. I had a, a PHP page that just doesn't work anymore for <laughs> no reason because Safari changed something. Um, so yeah, that type of stuff. So I did get a couple of updates out for retrospective timelines. Um, I version 1.0.4 was a couple of small bug fixes. And then I had a couple feature requests in my inbox. Some of these were things that I had already wanted to do. Um, and some of them were kind of relatively new ideas, but, uh, I think the interesting ones are date formatting and duration formatting. So when I built the app, I just kind of decided on some formats for dates and durations that I liked as the default and shipped that. And what I mean by duration, I mean like how long ago was the date from the current date. So by default, um, using WWDC, for example, I've got a little countdown timeline and I'm estimating this year's WWDC to be on June 1st. So the default duration for that is three months and four weeks based on the formatting for the day. Tomorrow, it'll say three months, three weeks, and six days, things like that. So I decided to add a couple of new settings system-wide that can change the date. There's four different formatting options. The one that includes the actual day of the week, which is kind of helpful when looking back, like, you know, this was 12 years ago. What day of week was it? That type of thing. It's also some shorter formats. So if you just want like the month, day, year as short numbers, you can have that. And then the duration one, I had, I got a little bit more creative. I've got five options. I've got weeks, months, days ago, months, weeks, days ago, months, days ago, weeks, days ago, and then days ago. And uh, <laughs> so it's kind of five different ways of looking at the same data. And so you can set those up in settings. Um, I kept the defaults the same, but you can go into the settings and change that and it'll apply on all the list views and all the detail views. But then I added a little hidden feature on the detail view where you can tap the date and cycle through the various format options or tap the duration string and cycle through them. So if you want to just keep the default, but then say, how long ago was this event in days? You can just tap it a couple times. And uh, a, a personal example, we don't talk about it too much on the podcast, but I've been um, recovering from alcohol for the last 12 years of my life. And at some point, maybe I'll tell that story in a bigger way, but it's one of the reasons that I started making this app to keep track of personal milestones like that. So yesterday was my 12 year anniversary since I quit drinking. Congratulations. And, well, thank you. And I can uh, tap through these formats and say that was a Saturday, February 2nd, 2008, when I walked into some dingy church basement in downtown Columbus to my first AA meeting. And then I can also tap through the days. Um, it's kind of a joke in AA that some people, some of the old timers will continue to give their 
uh, duration of sobriety in days instead of <laughs> years. So mine is currently 4,384 days ago. Nice. And it's just kind of a cool side effect of the app. So that rolled out. The other, you know, relatively small feature that it rolled out with this update was um, notes. So events can now have notes, which was already in the schema. We talked about this last fall. I pulled it at the last minute because my implementation of the custom text view was pretty wonky and Swift UI doesn't have a multi-line text object at this point. But since I redid those data entry forms in UIKit a couple weeks ago, I was able to just make a new notes feature. And it's pretty nice, actually. It's it's actually just the form is the same as it was, but now there's just a, a button to tap on or a table row to go to a separate um, view for notes. So the notes are separate, but you can get to it while you're in data entry mode. And then they show up on that detail view as well. And there's not really, I'm sure there's a technical limit for how much text you can put in a UI text view or core data string field. I haven't really looked it up. It doesn't seem to be any reasonable limit. Like I've put a lot of text there and uh, the layouts adapt pretty well. And I think the, oh, also with the, the formatting things, I added format options and menus to the sharing sheet too. So the sharing sheet, if you want to make a little image of an event, it'll use the defaults, but you can override that when you're generating that image as well. <clears throat> so I shipped that on Thursday last week and then kind of washed my hands of small updates for a while. And then I shipped another update the next day because I had my first oops. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, just a minor one, but it's kind of the side effect of how Swift UI and Swift 5.1 and Xcode, currently the the error messaging you get from the tools when something is wrong with your SwiftUI view isn't very helpful. And the error will sometimes show up. You may you know, miss something on line 180, but you'll see an error on line 42. With, it has nothing to do with what you're talking about. It, mm -hmm. It's just, it gets better in the next version of Swift. I've already read about some of the improvements that are coming, but I've fallen into this habit of basically just disabling chunks of code until I find what the issue is. Mm. Um, and when I was working on the new detail view, I disabled all of the content in a view and I just threw a text view with the word testing in its place to have it be able to build because you have to have a view inside of other views. Every view right. has to resolve to a view. And when I finished the changes I was doing and got rid of the errors, I re-enabled all the view content, but forgot to get rid of that testing string. And I was just flipping through it the next day, looking at something. And like, why, does it, why does every screen say testing in small print at the top? And uh, yep, <laughs> that had to go. <laughs> so it took about you know 30 seconds to fix and submit. And it was live in the App Store like 45 minutes later. But it was just kind of a oops. So do you have a timeline for oops updates? Like it's, it's been 345 days since our last lost time accident. <laughs> they have no. at manufacturing facilities and stuff. No, no. not yet. Although maybe, maybe I should. I, I was thinking about making a timeline for the history of Swift. I think that we, I might spend some time doing some research of like 
when was Swift initially conceived in mm-hmm. Apple? Like when did they start working on it? When did they unveil it to us? When were the various releases, you know, various betas and releases and decisions about the languages? I can probably get a lot of this from Swift.org. Mm-hmm. And then or from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And just build myself a little timeline of it. But particularly being able to see like the coverage span of like Swift 1.0 was the active supported language for this duration of time versus, you know, Swift 3 mm-hmm. in a similar span, that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's kind of what I worked on version 1.0.4 and the version 1.0.5, which is basically like, oops, I fixed this. And then, uh, I'm kind of slowing down on retrospective timelines after those updates. Um, and what I mean by that is two two different things. I've got a lot of consulting work to do, so I'm going to keep my the time I spend on the project to a minimum. But I do want to continue to make steady progress on it. Like I don't want to just put it on the back burner. Um, so that's kind of, these are the last of the small updates for a while because I think I've fixed all the bugs and the issues that I'm, going to or can fix right now. So I'm going to start working on one of the bigger releases, which is version 1.1.0. And that is going to be entirely focused around the visual timelines. And that those two words, visual timeline, need a lot of flushing out before I actually know <laughs> what I'm building there. Hmm. And, and I wanted to talk through some of this stuff with you and get your thoughts. So I'll try to define the problem that I'm having before we see about coming up with a solution or alternative. Okay. But so we've got, and also let's put some constraints on this. I'm only building this feature with the constraint of a single timeline. I'm not worried about the multiple timeline views or seeing parallel timelines together in place. I'm only talking about, I click on my personal milestones and get my list of events that are just in that timeline. Okay. So that should simplify this quite a bit. So data structure wise, we've got a timeline as the parent entity, and then a timeline can have multiple events and an event can have one or more dates. One, It's one, one or two dates. It's not really a many to many or one to many. It's a it's two one-to-one relationships. So an event can have a single date or a start date and an end date. Um, and technically those dates are in a separate table, but that's, not, that's kind of immaterial. What I want to do and what I, you know, I figured out how to do mathematically is create a visual element that will position the objects placed relative to one another based on their duration in a span of time. So if the timeline has, you know, the earliest event on January 1st, 2019, and the last event on December 31st, 2019, then we have a one-year time span. Maybe I have five events scattered throughout the year. I want to position them in that one-year time span based on where they happened. And figuring out how to do that was relatively straightforward, but it's something I can do after I fetch the data and 
It's not something that's kind of built into the database. And this is where I'm kind of spoiled as a FileMaker guy. You could totally do this with relationships and with global fields to filter those relationships um, where one record can look at, you know, can basically do a self-join and get the first record across the self-join. And that may be possible with core data. I don't know how to do it. I have not figured it out. And the monkey wrench into this problem, I can figure out how to do that with relationships in a static manner, but these list views support filtering. So what happens when I decide to hide all the end dates? How do I get those relationships to update based on filters that are happening outside of the relationship, basically, and as predicates that are being applied to the fetch in the first place? And so the way that I've structured it so far in my you know test copy of the view is the view is driven by a fetch result controller that is handling all the communications with core data. I'm passing it a fetch request and a sort description. And then it's giving me back an array of dates, of RT date objects. And then I'm going through that data object to get the rest of the event information. Um, when I get that back, I can map that array onto another array and during that process, I can calculate the duration. Basically, I'm just calculating a single number for the padding that should be applied before that event. So I've got a function that gets the earliest date on the timeline, gets the latest date on the timeline, multiplies it by some scalar value that I made up. It's kind of arbitrary, basically like, you know, if, if there's a hundred events, use this much padding and then divide it up among this, these many events. And then, so basically each day in time becomes a block of padding of like 33 pixels or 70 pixels or whatever a day represents for that timeline based on the spin. But applying that timeline only works after getting the data from core data. And I'm not sure if I'm explaining this very well. If I were to pick one of those dates, open a modal, and change something about it, that date itself would recalculate, but the rest of the timeline won't. And now all of the spacing is inaccurate. So if I move something mm, okay. forward or back a month, that single event will update, but the rest of the timeline won't. So that's kind of the problem of having. And there are three ideas I have to solve this. One is, give up on the idea of an interactive visual timeline and keep the data management side and the visual representation side separate. So what I mean by that is right now you, you tap on a timeline and you go to a list of events. It's the Swift, Swift UI equivalent of a UI table view of records, so, you know, sub-summarized by year. And so this first option is basically leave that as it is and make somewhere else to go add another navigation button somewhere else that says, now we're going to go look at the visual version of this in the same way that we would say, show me a report or a chart for this data. But right. we're not actually worried about editing the data from here. Um, and then that's probably the easiest of these options. It's not as flexible as what I want, but 
it's basically like you're finished entering the data. Now go into data visualization mode where you can visualize it various ways and apply filtering um, and redraw the entire timeline every time because you don't have to have, have to worry about updates to data. It's really just working on reporting. And so that's that's the one I'm kind of leaning towards right now. But I'd like to see if there are other ways to handle this as well. Option two is basically replace my current implementation with an object to kind of make this more combined slash Swift UI, where maybe take the fetch result controller out of the equation, write a view model for the backend for this particular view that can handle the core data fetching and the array mapping, but make that array mapping the item that's being published. So I might actually have to, might be able to use the at published property wrapper, or I might have to write my own publisher specifically in the same way that with a fetch result controller, there's a publisher that says, you know, this thing is about to receive an update and it tells the views to, you know, prepare to redraw or receive an update from the data. I could write something like that. And that's going to be involved, but something that I could figure out. Um, the third option would be ideal and from my perspective as a spoiled FileMaker developer, I want to do all this in relationships. Shouldn't I always be able to solve everything with a database, Dave? That's I, kind of what I'm used to. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so it would be really cool to see if I can figure out a way to create the relationships that I need where basically I want, I want to be able to fetch the same data that I'm getting now, but I want each individual record to be responsible for fetching its previous item in the list to calculate its duration or its uh, padding value. And that's the part I don't know how to do. And hmm. I could probably do this in FileMaker, like mock it up and actually get it working in FileMaker. It's the, it's the type of question that I don't really know how to ask intelligently outside of the context of FileMaker. So it's like, Maybe I need to make a FileMaker example of it and then make a SQL example of it and then see if I can use that as a you know, pointer on Stack Overflow. Like, I want to do this, but with core data, is that possible? Right. Um, so those are the three options. Um, three is the most complicated. I have no idea if it's even possible and it would probably take an enormous amount of time, but it would give me the best result where mm -hmm. you would have both an interactive timeline as far as making edits to the data and a visual version of that. One is probably the most pragmatic um, in terms of just getting something out there and really right. just thinking about it as like, this is a way of producing timelines. Then one is definitely the best way to go. And two is kind of like, eh, this could be a lot of work, but it could work, but it also sounds like something that I could end up having to maintain a lot of extra code to keep it working. Right. <clears throat> um, the first thing that comes to mind as a different way of thinking about the problem is kind of a variant on two. Mm -hmm. And it's, can you make the interaction between 
the view and then clicking on something and getting the edit and then exiting the edit screen as a event that you can trap or a property that you can test just for that one object that you were looking at so that you can say, and this is a little bit brute force, but recalculate this entire view now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of what that option involves. Okay. Would be basically recalculating the entire view, but making that process happen manually because the way I'm doing it now with the fresh result controller, I don't really get that notification at that level. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what that option is. And the only thing that I don't like about that option isn't that idea. It's the fact that as soon as I step out of the comfort of the fetch result controller, I have to start thinking about how much data is involved. Right. Because there's no way, I, I basically, I need to start pooling that data myself rather than relying on the fetch result controller batching system to do that for me. And I'm going to have to do that anyway because mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to build this in a list object. I'm going to have to use scroll views for this. And unfortunately, with scroll view, it will create every item in the scroll view at once. So if you've got 500 events, it's going to create 500 rows. Whereas a, a list view, like a table view, will only create what it needs to to show on screen and maybe a little bit more to have right. some padding. So it, it's very well optimized. Um, so that option is, you know, this is a premature optimization to even be thinking about it, but like I need to think about the potential user that it could have hundreds or thousands of events in a timeline. Um, and particularly, can I make the view, it, what happens if I make a thousand views that have these graphical elements? Is that gonna completely overwhelm the device's RAM? Right. So yeah. <clears throat> so. I could probably get around that by, like I said, paging or, or pooling of like, the timeline can show 100 events at a time and then you can have pages for it. So there's a number of things that can happen when you're editing a single, <clears throat> a single event that could change the scale of the entire diagram. <clears throat> excuse me um so even if you do all of your optimizations you still may have to redraw the entire thing mm -hmm. yeah which means yeah i guess th th those are separate issues <laughs> i have to redraw the whole thing to get the calculations to update but the pooling I'm talking about isn't about reducing that recalculation. It's about the, uh, keeping the minimal number of views from actually existing at once. Does that make sense? No, now I got lost. <clears throat> so the, the problem that I'm having with scroll view specifically is that if, if I give, if I make a scroll view and then put a for loop in it that says, mm -hmm you know, create a view for each of these 400 items. It's not going to be smart like a table view and only sh 
create eight to 10 at a time. It's going to create 400 of them before anything loads. Right. And that could be, I, I've seen it in memory. I've seen like passing a bunch of data to a scroll view like that and, and going from 40 megs of memory to 70 or 80 in half a second. Right. And so that's what I'm trying to avoid with the pooling system of coming up with a cap for that, like a data cap to say, these visual timelines can show a hundred records at a time or a thousand records at a time, whatever I come up with there. But that is separate from the issue of recalculating the positions. So that's a, a separate issue. Right. <clears throat> hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of leaning towards item one in terms of just getting started. Um, and I'm also kind of keeping in the back of mind that people are going to want to get these timelines out of the app. And I want to do a version of that, but I'm also kind of giving myself the constraint that I don't have to worry about that. Like I am making an app that makes timelines, not an app that exports timelines. Right. And and if I make something that you can export later, that's great. That's a that's a bonus. But I'm not I'm not going to limit myself to stuff that will work there. So I think in terms of just getting something working, I may just start with version one and see if I can get the visual design elements that I want working and running and then kind of slowly revisit option two or three to see is there a way to optimize this with the data in such a way that I can have kind of a continuously updating version of the timeline. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I, I think we'll probably have to take that conversation offline because to really get into it, I'm going to have to start asking questions that are almost undoubtedly going to infuriate you or, or <laughs> not infuriate, frustrate you mm. until I really get exactly where the problem is. Because my earlier question was based off of what I had built it as, as an understanding. And apparently that was all wrong. So mm. we could spend 20 minutes here just trying to straighten out my brain and... Mm -hmm. I, I know what that's going to do to you. So let's not record that. Yeah. So see, listener, this is why we really went two weeks. <laughs> a week to talk and a week to get over how mad I am at Dave. And then a week to talk. <laughs> why don't Anyways. you see what's so clear to me, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, yeah, that's the problem that I'm going to be thinking about working on slowly but surely over the next couple of weeks or months. Um. I guess the last quick topic I have on the app is thinking about positioning the app and really kind of, I, hate, I almost hate to use this phrase because it's overused, but leaning into the idea of timelines, which is funny because right at the end of the initial development, I actually removed the word timeline from the app and removed it from all my marketing copy. And for about two weeks, I was just kind of thinking about this in terms of lists and items on the list. And then at the last moment, I've re-added timeline and sort of using the event and timeline terminology again. And I'm glad I did because now I'm thinking of the app as, well, I initially kind of 
positioned it as like a a personal way to keep track of your most important milestones. I'm also thinking this could be a handy tool to visualize data over time. And, you know, like some of the the timelines that I have made since then, like my core timelines are, you know, personal and professional milestones and stuff like that. But I've also had really fun making the one for computers, making a Star Wars timeline. We talked about the history of Swift one that I want to make. So these are more general purpose kind of fun things to do that don't really have the emotional significance of when I quit drinking or got my first job in the professional world and stuff like that. So I'm thinking about kind of over the next couple of months repositioning the app as a more general purpose thing. And if I come up with this way to visualize the data in really cool ways, either opening that up to other apps by um, either adding features to this app or making a standalone app. But say, for instance, you've got a calendar that you already track this kind of stuff on. Being able to add a kind of a fake timeline in retrospective timelines that loads data from that app instead of from the core data store. Or you've got uh, a day one notebook with a list of stuff in your journal entry and you want to visualize that on a timeline or an Evernote notebook or something like that. Um, but really thinking about it in terms of a timeline tool and less of a, I guess my, my touchy feely, you know, personal introspection machine. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I like the touchy feely thing. Um, I do, I do too. I'm just not sure yeah. that that many people are ever going to be willing to pay for it. Right. So yeah, maybe, maybe the timeline thing that I'm talking about becomes a separate app. Um, I don't know. Anyway, that's kind of what I'll be, I'll be noodling on for the next couple of weeks. What's going on with you? Well, I spent a fair amount of time killing SQLite. Nice. Just cutting it off at the knees um didn't you just make friends with that a couple weeks ago i no not really it it never fully made friends um because i i was having those problems where like i would create the table and then when i started shoving data into the tape or i could create the table shove data into the table. When I started asking for data out of the table, there weren't tables there anymore. Mm. Yeah. You're, you're going to want that with the database. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, data retention is kind of important in that way. Mm. Um, so at this point I've just got an array, shove the stuff into an array. Um, it may, by, I'm sorry, but by, by array, I assume you mean C sharp list. Uh, yes. Though there are C-sharp arrays and then C-arrays. And it's one of the fun things with uh, C-sharp is they've got like eight different varieties of list things depending upon the exact properties you want it to have. So yes, it's actually mm -hmm. a list. Um, a, a list of FileMaker elements. Uh, it may actually be a bit faster. And I think it's actually more RAM efficient. 
because I don't have any of the database overhead. Um, I don't necessarily get all the database advantages, but I don't have the database overhead. And I was concerned about it hurting my ability to kind of save state. Because one of the cool things I had is I was building it in a SQLite database in RAM, an in-memory database, just mm-hmm. to keep things quick. But there was only one or two lines of code that I needed to change, and suddenly that could be a saved file on the machine that stored the database. And if you could open that database again, you'd have it. Um, and I don't think I'm all that hurt from that just by being able to serialize standard C sharp data structures. Mm-hmm. I should be able to just write this out. Um, though now that I think about it, one of the things I'm going to talk about later may have hurt that slightly. I'll have to work on that. Um, uh, no, I'm just going to have to change the serialization process. Anyway, uh, so maybe a bit faster. My first step was kind of revising in place. I had kind of a full API for talking to this data and I just went through and edited the contents of every single one of those functions to talk to the list instead. Mm. Um, actually I wasn't even doing a list. I was doing a concurrent bag. (laughs) Okay. A bag of data is new to me. (laughs) (laughs) So C sharp has a data structure called a concurrent bag. And you can think of it like a list that is thread safe. Okay. Okay. So you can just jam things into this bag from 30 different threads and it won't cause a problem. It does have one interesting property in that in the definition it says um, a concurrent bag is not order safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think it's still generally ordered but because you're shoving shoving things in in multiple threads you can't depend upon any two things to fall in the same like fall in the same the insertion order yeah but that insertion order might have things stuck in the middle from other threads I think yeah, so it could be ordered like when you're done putting stuff in it and go to look at it again. It could be ordered in that state, but not in a reliable state as you're adding stuff to it. Right. So, and I had all this work to like, okay, then at a certain point in the process, we kind of commit the bag because I really need to be working <laughs> with this. I, I'm sorry. I just love this terminology. <laughs> <laughs> Do, do we have a show title? Commit the bag. I think we do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where it would convert the bag into just a standard list. Because at that point, I can read from the list from multiple threads without a real problem as long as I'm not trying to edit the list. However, uh, I, I got that functional. And then realized that that was all just a ton of premature optimization. Hmm. Like I was, I was just putting a ton of effort into trying to make this work for its fastest version when I didn't know how fast it was to begin with. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Additionally, 
right now, because I'm using a streaming XML parser, it's effectively single threaded. Like the parsing is very, very fast, but it's single threaded. So so I don't really need a bag to shove things into that's thread safe unless I'm going to rewrite the parser. Yeah, so you're kind of bottlenecked by the parser itself. Right. Which is already pretty fast. Right. So instead of doing that, I kind of ripped all of that out as well and just went, shove it into the list, process it from the list, we're done. And that worked. The problem is that my API made no sense because the names of my functions still said things like create tables. Hmm. Uh, query table in a particular manner that kind of thing and I don't really have tables anymore you know I was I had set up database functions and I don't need set up database functions anymore because I just have a list and so some of that code like even though it was now doing what I wanted it to do all the rest of the code was looking at it and saying stupid things. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, this also needs to be cleaned up. So remove all the dead code and then kind of rewrite the API to be a little bit more generic. I didn't make it more specific to the new structure. I just made it kind of structure independent. So if I end up doing bags or lists it shouldn't matter. Um, and now everything makes lots more sense. <laughs> and I'm not constantly like looking at a function, reading the name of the function, then running my brain through the translation that I did previously and going, what does this function actually do now? Now the name of the function describes what the function does. Um, and then... There's a really cool optimization that I can do in that because I had records before, if I wanted to connect two records, what I stored was the index, like the primary key for Mm -hmm. the connected record, the way you do relationally. And then if I wanted to get from a record to its connected record, I'm pairing these things up from the original record to the modified version, I would have to run a SQL query to connect across that key. Mm -hmm. Well, now I'm dealing with in-memory data structures. I can just store a reference to the other thing, which is basically instantaneous and free. Yeah. For all intents and purposes. It's not, but... It's going to be way faster than running a SQL query to connect those two records. Um, so you you basically reinvented core data. <laughs> um, no. I know. I mean, technically core data is still a database backend, yeah. but it's kind of like, like I'm using types. I'm keeping references to, you know, the related timeline Right. Not an idea of the timeline. That so, so it's kind of a hybrid approach of like I'm treating the stuff like objects in the code I'm writing, but the core data stuff, it's doing yeah. all the database stuff. Yeah. Whereas I just actually have the objects. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I did do a little bit of optimization in a spot or two. Like there were things that I couldn't really optimize because they were in the table. Like if I wanted to pull out a particular record from the table, not like the linked one, but just I have the idea of a record. Give me the data for that thing. I basically had to go back to the database to grab it. And I'd considered putting in a thing that said kind of once you viewed a record in the interface, I would cache that so that I wouldn't have to pull it every time, go back to the database and pull this thing out again. Um, And instead, what I ended up doing was just building a dictionary that stores all those records by ID. Hmm. So it uses the ID as the key for the dictionary. And it's not a huge amount of memory to do this, but basically I can make my own fairly fast indexes in that way and converting a list of items into a dictionary of items is pretty darn fast, which leads me to an idea that I'm not, I'm, trying very hard not to work on because we were talking about don't prematurely optimize. But I was thinking I can do this for other stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There are spots in the system where I have to say, find a record in the old data. Now go look in the new data for the matching record. And I'm using functional programming. So it's just a find thing that matches criteria. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty fast. But if I don't find one that matches on that criteria, I have to try another criteria. And then another criteria. And then another criteria. And I could end up running through the new records from top to bottom multiple times trying to get there. And if instead I slice this in another direction and say, try and match everything against name, ID, and content matching. Mm -hmm. Now just try name and ID. Now just name, but not ID. Now just ID, but not name. What I can do is I can actually quickly build one of these dictionary-based indexes of that data, which will allow me to pull something out of that data storage much faster. Yeah. Um, and I, I need to, I actually need a bigger database to work with for my testing purposes before I can really see whether this is fast, because right now it can do, it can run through a set of these connections in one, Ten thousandth or two ten thousandths of a second. Mm, that's too slow for for the whole batch. <laughs> I know I mean, you could do better, Dave. I, I, yeah, well, but but right now, most of the time when I'm when I'm building this to keep things moving quickly, I'm working off of a a modified sample of like the project starter file. There's mm-hmm. twenty one hundred FileMaker elements in there. Well, yeah, you need one with a couple hundred thousand. Right. <laughs> with a couple hundred thousand, I will start to see where things are slow. Um, I do need to find somebody, like I've got a couple of DDRs from huge systems 
Mm-hmm. But what I need is for somebody to generate for me a FileMaker 18 or FileMaker 19 new XML export from two different versions of the system. Mm. Um, that was one of the things that I had when I was writing FM Perception was a developer very nicely provided me with two different copies of a DDR from a one gigabyte DDR. Oh, nice. And that was great for testing purposes. Um, you'd, you'd realize very quickly if something was slow when it was dealing with a gigabyte of data. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have a system to help you with this time. Yeah. But, uh, everyone's using 17s. I don't have any 18 customers. Yeah. Anyway, so I definitely don't have access to 19. Yeah. Which I guess is probably... Yeah, I guess it's coming around that time of year. We're going to be seeing a new FileMaker soon. Yep, shouldn't be that long. Um, And so, yeah, and then get this working and make sure I'm testing it in the interface and everything is happy, but why aren't the changes displaying? Like, I had this code that would look at to, you know, once it's identified a thing that's matched mm-hmm. and or a a matched set and identified that there is a change between those two things. I then had some code that would go through and display what the individual properties were that had changed and nothing's showing up. (laughs) And then I realized, Hey, there was a whole other table. (laughs) So, at one point I was thinking that I would have the interface do this comparison. Like the back end mm. could figure out which things were changed, but then the interface could actually display the changes. I mean, the interface has to display the changes, but it turns out that I was actually calculating those in the back end, in the C-sharp code, and storing it with the thing, with the, the original record. Yeah. And so, because that was still a SQLite table in a whole other section of the source code, (laughs) I wasn't really making SQLite anymore. And oddly enough, it continued to silently fail. Nice. And it just kept finding nothing. It would would try and query the table and came back and went, nah, no records. Um, Yeah, I mean, technically, yeah, no records. I, I just kept getting empty lists back. You know, I'd get the record, and then the changes property should have been an array and was not. So I, I told you there are no records. I don't know what you want from me. Right. There are no records. And it quite happily will display with no records. Mm-hmm. Um, the primary reason for making sure that the back end does all of that is I want to be able to make sure that I can do things like exports and reports from mm-hmm. the back end. Yeah. So all the data is generated in the back end. The front end doesn't do any of the heavy lifting. That keeps kind of all of my heavy lifting in one set of code. I'm not sharing it between two systems, which gives me a really nice kind of data separation thing. The interface doesn't have to worry about it. It just gets a bunch of data and shows it to you in a nice way, but it really just has to do data display not data not heavy data manipulation um 
So really what this was, was rediscovering how I wrote the app. If you recall from a couple of shows ago, I was talking about how I was concerned that I was now going to be picking up this code that I hadn't touched in a number of months because I was working on the parser. Well, Mm -hmm. it turns out there were some growing pains there. I was totally correct to be concerned about figuring out how my app worked again. Because some of the source code I hadn't looked at in six months. And yeah, it, it all of it didn't immediately make perfect sense to me again. I had to do a little bit of spelunking and figure out what was going on there. So yeah. You really need a term to refer to as the the parser error era. Like <laughs> the, uh, the antler wars or something. Like before the antler wars and after the antler wars. <laughs> B-A and A-A? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this also tells me that I, I need some more comments. I've got Mm. some chunks of code that were written that have good function names and it's fairly self-documenting code. Like once I looked at the code, it, it generally made sense what the code was doing, but I didn't necessarily know to look at it and I didn't understand all the edge elements. So... Some nice blocks of comments on some of these yeah. things rather than, you know, line level comments. Um, the antler code has a lot of stuff that has, you know, a paragraph before each major function that talks about what it does. I may have to like take a plane trip or something. It's yeah. a great thing for doing on a plane is just sitting there and commenting code. Re- reading code can be hard. Like writing code is a lot of fun. Reading code from a long time ago can yeah. be pretty challenging. And I'm I don't necessarily comment up the code that much, but I keep really good documentation that kind of maps one to one to what I'm doing. And there was a problem recently that I was debugging for a customer where basically there was a process that was happening where a record should have been cleaned up out of a database. So there are some placeholder records created and there was this one edge case where they weren't being cleaned up when they weren't needed anymore. And it, this was a you know FileMaker backend with the PHP front end. And I'm looking at this thing like the PHP is sending exactly what it needs to FileMaker. It's encoding it in JSON here. It's all documented, it's all working impeccably. On the FileMaker side, it's getting the JSON out. It's running all the stuff here, all working impeccably. Everything was working as it should have been. If I had ever connected the two in any way, it would have been. But they weren't talking. I had never done that part. So I I had written two gloriously perfect, well-documented pieces of code that I never activated. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. actually leads me into my next point is it was during the Antler project that I really had my first experience of falling in love with unit tests. Mm-hmm. And this older code doesn't have them. It's set up like I built the project to support unit tests. There's a boilerplate unit test just sitting there waiting for me to run it. But I haven't written all the other unit tests. So as I'm going through here, as I touch each of these functions, I really need to sit down and write half a dozen unit tests for each one. 
and kind of stick nails in them, put a pin in things so they don't slide. And at some point, we're, we're going to have to commission some art for the show, maybe a new uh, podcast image or some T-shirts or a website, and it's going to have to be heavily focused around unit tests. <laughs> Need to figure out a way to visualize that. Mm. Unit test over a timeline. <laughs> now, now I kind of want like a uh, a bar chart. It's going to look a lot like a, a bell curve. It's like no mm. unit tests, lots of unit tests, back to no unit tests. Crap. Yeah. Um, I really came to depend upon the confidence that that provided. And now I am working in code that does not have it. And I'm sad. <laughs> I'm also going to need to figure out how to do that on the JavaScript side of things. Um. Mm. So I can make sure that that stuff doesn't move. Um, which leads me into the interface side of things. Um, really digging back into the interface, seeing how all those pieces fit together. Um, as I mentioned at least once quite a while ago, it's basically an entirely independent code base. Mm -hmm. um, I'm even using a different development environment. So I shift between visual studio for mac and visual studio code visual studio for mac is where i'm writing all the c sharp stuff and visual studio code gets all the javascript and html mm -hmm. and <clears throat> yeah getting back in there seeing how all of that fits together modifying some stuff because i had to do some work on the interface side to understand why things weren't why these changes weren't appearing yeah. Um, and while I'm there, you know, trying to trying to figure out how to really polish this up in the sense of not just the visuals of the interface, but the flow of the interface. Mm -hmm. Like I was sitting down and... and collating all my notes about all the things that I wanted to give the user the ability to do or define before they start the diff process. There are things that I want to give them the ability to override settings and things like that. And some of those settings are, are easily indicated, but there's a fair amount of help text that kind of needs to go along with that. And there's half a dozen of these things. Actually, it's probably closer to a dozen. You know, do I care about uh, whether or not the scripts are in the right order? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I can just say I don't care. As long as all the scripts are there and they're all calling the right things, I'm going to call that done. Okay, that's fine. I will not flag for you when the order of the scripts changed. Um, kind of, again, trying to cut down on the noise people see when they're looking at a large, complex diff over, you know, three months of changes or something like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and just, there's too much stuff for some of the spaces that I've set aside for it. You know, I have I have this much screen real estate dedicated to something that honestly could take five times as much space 
And so turning this into something that, you know, what I've been building so far is an app that a diff pro can use really effectively. But what I want is something that any FileMaker developer can pick up and look at. And even if they have to read a little bit of text, the explanation will make sense. And they'll go, oh, okay, yeah, I want that on and that off. And this is important to me. And this is not. Now go. And it will show them exactly what they want to see in a way that makes sense. Um, because as I'm, as I'm getting back into the main app, I'm going to be spending a lot more time with the interface. So really kind of writing it all down, collating all the stuff, because a lot of the interface grew organically. I was learning too many technologies at once while trying to design the app. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I hadn't done C sharp on Mac with, um, xamarin.mac with html css javascript and view in a node-based environment where these things interconnected like there was too much new stuff all at once and i was building a good functional app but not a great functional app if i'm going to spend this much time on it i want to release a great app hmm. um well i think it was blizzard no, I can't remember who said it first. I heard about it a lot with Blizzard stuff. It was like, it's only late until it releases. But if it mm. sucks, it sucks forever. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So that's what I'm working on. Fun. Well, hopefully you can get some help with the design of the system. Yep. I know a particularly talented and intelligent and handsome person who I can recommend. Uh, I, I'd like to speak with them some more on that. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert for future episodes. Mm -hmm. 